our goal as a team not to simply perform for you or put on a concert tonight, but to come alongside and worship the Lord with you tonight. So we'd ask that as we go through our songs tonight, that you would be actively listening to the words and meditating on them as we go through. Um, and we wanted the opportunity to worship with you corporately first, so if you would take your hymnals and turn to page number 79 and stand with me as we sing the first and third verses of To God Be the Glory.
good evening. It's great to be with you this evening. We are the Heritage Singers from Maranatha Baptist University, and we'll tell you a little bit more about Maranatha a little bit down the road, but we want to introduce ourselves so that you have an idea of who we are. We'd love to get to know you after the service. We'll be back in the foyer by our table and all spread out, and we would love to get to know each and every one of you, get to know the ministry that's going on here in Hollister. My name's Tyler Juvenal. I am from Wausau, Wisconsin. I graduated from Maranatha just about a year and a half ago with a Bachelor's of Biblical Studies, and then right now I'm working on my Master's in Organizational Leadership. Good evening, my name is Dylan Keener. I'm from Worthington, Pennsylvania, and I'm a senior music major studying church music and early childhood music. I'm Lydia Backrick. I grew up in the Philippines, and I'm going into my senior year as a music major studying flute performance. I am from Birmingham, Michigan. My name is Matthew Holloway, and I am a junior studying speech. I'm going into my senior year studying elementary education. I'm from Asheboro, North Carolina. My name is Claire Green. I'm from Nova Scotia, Canada. My name is Rayanna Eastridge, and I am a junior studying music education. My name is Joel Montgomery. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I'm a senior studying trumpet performance and music composition. Each of the songs that we'll be singing tonight all come directly from God's Word. And I know that's, wow, what a shock. But... Each one of them has a place in our program, and we would hope that each one of them would point you more towards Christ. So each one of them has has different aspects that impacted the author, and so they put them together in an excellent format, and, and then we want to help minister those words and the music to you. But it's not, we're not just ministering it to you. We also have taken it upon ourselves as a team to be intentional as we sing these songs, to think about what's going on in them too. Because as you can imagine, as we're traveling throughout the summer and singing the same songs over and over again, from a human standpoint, it can get kind of dull. But there's a difference. We're not just singing songs that have no meaning. These songs are taken from God's Word. And so it being God's truth... It can't, it, it, it can't lose its value. And so as we're singing these songs, we're paying attention to them, or at least we're doing the best we can. And we would invite you to as well, so that you can grow in your relationship with God, so that He can draw you a little bit closer to Himself. The next song we'll be singing is taken directly from Psalm 23. It speaks about the Lord being our shepherd, and different implications that come about as a result of us being a part of His flock. I ask for more. 
satisfied with what he gives, he will provide and I shall not want, I shall not want. He leads through the valley, and I shall not want, and I shall not want. He is enough for every need, he is enough for every broken Satisfied with what he gives, he will provide and faithfully support. Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He is the dead, he is the shade, he is the stream. In every song, he is my thing, and if we want to. His mercy calls us back to home. His mercy calls us back to they're going to be singing speaks about the gospel, specifically how that Jesus' blood was enough. In Hebrews 10:12, it says, But Jesus, once he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. The work on the cross was complete, and it was sufficient, and because of that, all that is left for us to do is accept God's wonderful gift of grace. Rejoice with us this evening that because Jesus' blood was enough, we need no other argument and no other plea. My faith has found a resting place in Jesus Christ, not in device nor found in any creed. I trust the ever-living one who my Lord, his wounds and death for me shall ever plead. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough, Jesus died, it is enough, and he died for me. Oh, stop. 
that Jesus saves my soul. Saves my soul. This ends all of my fear and all my doubt. Ends my fear and A sinful soul, I come to Him. He hears my cry. Hears my cry. He'll never, ever turn and cast me out. I need no other argument. I need no other. My Savior's name, salvation, through his blood, through his blood, I need no other argument, I need no other plea, it is enough, Jesus died, it is take a moment and tell you a little bit about Maranatha, who we are, what our ministry is, uh, so that you have an idea. Uh, if you have any more questions than the stuff that I talk about, there's a lot of information back on the table. It'll pretty much tell you everything that I'm about to say, but in writing. And a lot of that stuff back there is free, so we'd encourage you to pick it up. Maranatha is a Baptist university that's located in Watertown, Wisconsin. Watertown is right in between Madison and Milwaukee, so we're sandwiched in between both of those bigger, bigger towns, about 45 minutes in between both of them. Maranatha is a school that specializes in two areas, and these areas kind of cover everything, so our specialization is really in our students, but I'm, I'm rethinking that. We specialize in ministry students and non-ministry students, okay, which is, I guess it's not really a specialization. I've got to rethink this. We specialize in training leaders for the local church and the world to the praise of God's glory. And Maranatha, we understand that every believer is called to ministry. So whether that ministry be a full-time vocational position in your local church, or whether that ministry being sharing the word of God, sharing the gospel in your secular workplace, both of those are ministry. And so we understand that students are called to both of those different places, whether it be a full-time pastor or an associate pastor or a lay pastor uh, or a missionary or a biblical counselor, or on the other side, if it's a businessman or a nurse or a teacher in a public school or a teacher in a Christian school, God has called believers to all sorts of different occupations. And at Maranatha, we want to help prepare as many of those young people as we can and we do this by giving them a high-quality education, but weaved into that education is high-quality biblical teaching. 
And so each one of our students goes through Bible classes along with their normal classes for their major. So a business major would take Intro to Business Management, but they would also take a, a class like Philippians or, or the Pauline Epistles or the Book of John. There's a lot of different opportunities for each one of our students. So all in all, we have 48 different majors and 42 different minors. So there's a lot of different, uh, a lot of different combinations that our students can, can choose as they go through college. It's a really great opportunity. There's a lot of things to get involved in extracurricular on campus. Uh, we've got three different choirs at Maranatha. We care a lot about music. We love to sing. So we've got three different choirs that our students can be a part of. We have a band. We have orchestra. Uh, we have a lot of smaller ensembles that go out and sing. Even our soccer team sings. They're called the Tonal Defenders. And they go to different local churches during their off-season, and they minister in them on some of the weekends. So we love to sing. We love for our students to sing and make melodies to the Lord and to glorify Him in that way. Because we love to sing, because we love music, we've come out with a couple different albums recently. You might not know what this is. This is called a CD. And CDs, they go into CD players in your car or in your home. How many of you still have a CD player? Okay. How many of you do not have a CD player? Okay. So a couple. Well, whether or not you have a CD player, it's irrelevant. You can still get a hold of our music. So we have physical copies back on the table. We've got three different albums that are available back there. Um, and then if you don't have a CD player, all of our music is available on streaming services. If you don't know what that is, come pick up a hard copy at the table. We love to get this into your home because we understand that we as Christians have to be meditating on something throughout the day. We live in an evil world. We live in a world that wants to pull our, our, um, our vision away from Christ. We live in a world that wants to distract us from the things that really matter. And a great way of counteracting that is to be filling our minds with good, godly Christian music. And so, Lord willing, you would be able to pick some of those up back on the table. We've got a couple different deals running. We do cash and credit card, all that stuff back there. Um, so you can pick those up. We also have several books that look kind of like this. This one's called Gospel Fueled Joy. It is a devotional book from the book of Philippians. And we've got six different ones from different books of the Bible back on our table. These are devotional books that have been taken from our chapel series on campus. So each one of our students is required to go to chapel several times every week, which makes sense. Okay, we want to fill them with the Word of God. And during those, some of those chapels, we've gone through book studies throughout the semester. So Philippians, James, 1 Peter, different New Testament books like that. And at the end of the semester, we've compiled them into devotional booklets to help our students or any, anyone really who wants to get a, their hands on them as a supplement to your own devotional walk. So that's what these are excellent for is just to add to your devotional walk as you're reading through the Word of God. Uh, maybe you're reading through the book of Philippians and you want a little bit of help as you're reading through that. These are excellent books for that. They're also excellent if you want to just understand a little bit more about what we're teaching our students at Maranatha. Maybe you know of someone who should go to Maranatha, or maybe, maybe you think, hey, this would be an awesome opportunity for you, look into it. But you want to know a little bit more about what we teach, this is an excellent place to start because this is our chapel sessions. What goes on in chapel is pretty much the heart of what we're doing at Maranatha. So we're communicating this to our students, and we'd love for you to be able to see it as well. We've got six of these. You can pick up the whole set for $45, which is an excellent, valuable deal. Um, or you can get one or two of them for $10 a piece. It's up to you um, back at the table. Once again, we have a lot of different information back there. There's a ton of normal print media for, for our university. You can take a bunch of that stuff for free. Uh, we'd encourage you to, to take some of that and give it to people who you think 
might fit in at Maranatha. Maranatha might be a good fit for them. If you have any questions about Maranatha, anything further, uh, we would love to answer those. Ask any of the team members or come up to me. Uh, We'd love to talk to you about that. Joel and Lydia are going to play a song now called Wonderful Peace. It's in your hymnals on page 531. 531. Wonderful Peace. We'd encourage you to follow along with it. This song talks about how we as believers have the privilege of being able to found and base our lives on something that is more concrete than anything the world has to offer. We have Christ, and as a result of that, we can base our lives on him, and he provides us peace.
stormy blast and our be our help in ages to the future. But sadly, we as Christians often focus on the here and now, we focus on our trials and troubles, and we take our focus off of God and what he has done for us, and then what, what he promises to do for us in the future. But one man in history did not do that. He focused on God through life's most difficult challenges and troubles. And this man's name was Horatio Spafford. Horatio was a wealthy, influential man in the Chicago area, and the Lord had blessed him with five children. But sadly, his young son passed away, and in the same year, the great Chicago fire destroyed all of his buildings in Chicago. So to try to get away and to try to clear their heads, Horatio and his family decided to take a vacation to England to help out the Moody campaign. But Horatio was detained for a while in America, so he sent his wife and four daughters on ahead and told them that he would meet them there. But sadly, as his wife and daughters were traveling across the ocean, another vessel struck their ship, and all four of his daughters were drowned. Horatio's wife made it safely to England and telegrammed him back just two words, saved alone. As Horatio made his way out to be with his grieving wife, the captain came into his cabin and told him that this was the spot where his four daughters had drowned. And as Horatio looked at the tossing waves, he penned the words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. 
And that comparison is the same for each of us as Christians. When things are going well or things are going poorly, because of what Horatio writes in the second verse, that our sins are nailed to the cross, and because we bear them no more, we too can say, it is well with my soul. As we've gotten to travel over the last several weeks, 
um, we always are able to look out uh, in the congregation and see what songs people tend to relate to the most. And It Is Well is honestly the one that people tend to really respond to a lot. And that makes sense because we all know it. Many of us grew up with it. And it's amazing to me that God may have put Horatio Spafford through all of those things just so he would pen a song that would impact people for so many years to come. And there are a couple of ways that we can react to things like that. Number one, we can praise the Lord and for his goodness and see how he uses us in such incredible ways through trials. But there can also be a hint of fear attached to that, knowing that the Lord might put us through something that we don't want to go through simply for his own glory and for an impact on other people. And this last song that we're going to sing talks about the fact that sometimes it's not well with our soul during, the, during those trials. But through those times, the Lord shows himself when there's nobody else that's helping you and there's nothing left to cry out to the Lord. He's with us and he's there to protect us.
text says, I remember you are with me, and I am not afraid. It is such a sweet truth that our God is present with us in trials, in times of rejoicing. No matter what, it is well with our souls because our God is the same. As believers, it is one of the sweetest privileges we have that we can know who our God is and that we can have a personal relationship with him. As we get to know our God, we draw closer to him and our desire for him increases. And in turn, our desire for heaven increases because heaven will be the ultimate fulfillment of our relationship with God. The final song we'll close with was written by Fanny Crosby, who was blind from the time that she was an infant. For Fanny Crosby, walking into heaven meant that she would receive the sight she had lacked for so much of her life. But what she looked forward to most about heaven was seeing her Savior first of all, the Savior that she had spent her entire life getting to know and pursuing that relationship with. Fanny Crosby writes that she will enter heaven and see her Savior waiting there first to welcome her, and she would know him. Believers, we have that same opportunity to pursue an intimate, personal relationship with God, to know his character so that we have no reason to fear in trials or anything that life has, and so that one day when we enter heaven, by God's grace, we can say, I shall know him.
couple minutes that we have left, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, we only have a few minutes, but I think that the book of Genesis has a little bit to say about our world today. It has a little bit to say about how we should be living in our world. Each one of the songs we sang, in some part, has to do with the character of God. We're saying about knowing God. We sang about uh, how, how when Christ died, it was enough. We sang about how God has been our help in ages past. There's so many characteristics of God that are found all throughout Scripture. And a lot of times when we look for characteristics of God, we look in the Psalms. Uh, we look in, in the New Testament when Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those are characteristics about God. We don't often look for characteristics of God in Genesis chapter 6. We don't often look for characteristics of of God in this, in this part of Scripture, but it's there. And so today we'll look quickly at, at the fallen state of humanity contrasted with the righteousness of God, with the love of God, and also the justice of God. So we'll see a couple different, uh, a couple different attributes of who our God is as we look into this passage. I want to give you a quick overview of Genesis 1 through 5 because if we're going to understand Genesis chapter 6, we've got to understand everything that's leading up to that. I've heard it said that the book of Genesis is the most crucial book to understand as a foundation for Scripture. Because if you misunderstand what's going on in Genesis, you're going to misunderstand the rest of the Bible. There's no way around that. When we understand that God is the one that created everything, that we messed it up, that sets a foundation, it sets the stage for the rest of Scripture as Christ came to die for us, as He made a way for us to be saved from the initial sin that happened in Genesis. All of that is a foundation. So, in Genesis 1-5, through 5, we learn that God created everything through His spoken word. God said, let there be, and there was. He created everything perfect. He created everything and it was very good. He created mankind, and He gave mankind the role of being the ruler over His world. He gave mankind the, what we call the creation mandate, whereas they're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so they're supposed to take care of it, but it's also supposed to be the place that they live. And so in that creation mandate, in that command from God... God gave mankind the dignity of choosing how they would rule over his world. They could either choose to, uh, to do it their way, or they could choose to do it the way that God would have them to do it. But he gave them that choice. And so he gave them the choice, and it, it's shown in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
So in this, on this tree, if they were to eat of the fruit, they would be choosing their own way. They would be choosing to define good and evil themselves. But if they left the tree alone, then they would be choosing God's way. They would be choosing to actively obey what he had told them to do. And there were consequences for either action. So the consequences of doing things God's way was that they would continue to live in unity with each other, with God, and with the world around them. But if they chose to do things their own way, if they chose to eat of the fruit, then they would, the consequences were that their relationship with God would be severed, their relationship with each other would be hurt, and the relationship with the world would suffer. And so we see in chapter 3 the choice that they made. When the serpent deceived them and told them that they could be more like God than they were already, which was a, a joke because they were made in the image of God, they already were made perfectly exactly the way that God wanted them to be. They couldn't become more like God than the, perf- than the perfect way that God had created them to be. But they gave in to that lie. They gave in to the lie and they ate the fruit. And as a result, everything that everything, all the consequences happened. They brought death into the world. They severed their relationship with God. They severed their relationship with each other. And the world was cursed. So then, in chapters 3 through 6, mankind is thrown into this, this plummeting spiral downwards. They are filled with, with evil. Their sin is, is, is running rampant in the world. We see that that mankind starts to, to hurt one another. We see that Cain murdered Abel. We see Lamech, uh, and, and he has this whole cycle of pride and arrogance that he brings into the world. And there's a lot of other people uh, that, that are shown in these passages to bring into the world these sins. And so we come to chapter 6, and God kind of summarizes everything that has happened in the world. In Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6, it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. It's not incorrect to say, but it's a little bit of an understatement. He's going to go and delineate a little further. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination, or that word means intention, every imagination or intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. There's hardly a more explicit statement of man's sinfulness in all of Scripture. This is pretty much it. saying that mankind, at its heart, was fully evil. Most of the people on this planet, except for eight, which we'll see later, most everybody was, was evil in their hearts. Bible, the Bible says that everything that they thought to do, everything that they thought in their hearts, every intention was only evil. And so essentially what it's saying is that this downward spiral that they've been on for the last couple, probably a couple thousand years, they'd reached the bottom. There was no further that man could go to become more wicked than they already were. They had made it to the ultimate status of wickedness. And so God's heart was broken. It says it grieved his heart. It sorrowed him. It hurt. Because the people that he created to be just like him had chosen to do everything that was opposite of what he had created them to do. Mankind has totally turned their backs on God. And so God's justice comes on full display as he announces 
His judgment. Up until this point, God had been merciful and gracious. God's mercy and His grace, we know these characteristics well because He he uses them on us all the time. But up until this point, God had given mankind opportunity after opportunity for years and years to turn back to Him. And so we have God's love and His grace, but then in in verse 7, we also see God's justice. It says, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. This word repenteth, it it doesn't mean that God changed his mind. It doesn't mean that God made a mistake. We know that's that's true. Malachi 3 verse 6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. So none of this is, is God saying that he had made a mistake. Rather, God is grieving and he sorrowed because of these people. These people had rejected and forgotten him and they were going down a path that would need correction. And we know of God and His character that sin against God requires judgment. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The payment of, of sin is eventually going to be death. And so God brings His justice into play. So mankind is in a pretty terrible place. This is probably like the most depressing part of, of, of human history at this point. And mankind deserves God's judgment. But God is gracious again. And we see that in verses 8 through 22. We won't read all of them. But this man named Noah comes on the scene. And this man Noah is God's grace and mercy shown once again to the human race. Humans have entirely turned their back on God. But God uses this man Noah to save the human race. We'll look through it quickly. We'll see three aspects, three different things that made Noah different than the rest of the world and we see an example that's set for us in verse 8 it says but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord these are the generations of Noah Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations and Noah walked with God and Noah begat three sons Shem Ham and Japheth the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence and God looked upon the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. In verses 14 through 21, the verses that follow, God gives Noah the instructions and the command of how he's going to save him. And if you want to do some study on that, it's a really interesting passage where he gives them the dimensions of this ark that he would build. He gives them a way of escape. And then verse 22 It's a verse that we can easily look over, but it's one that really communicates where Noah's heart was. It says, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. I'd like for us, in the last couple minutes, just to focus on a couple areas, three specific areas, of Noah's life that set him apart from the rest of the world. We're not worshiping Noah, we're not setting him up on a pedestal. But Noah exemplified a couple key characteristics of what a Christian should be. He, we're given this example for our benefit, for, for our um, ability to follow in the example. And we're in a very similar place. Our world is, is wicked. Our world is in a place that is anti-God. But if Noah was able to follow the Lord, be faithful to Him, and exemplify these characteristics in the world that he was living in, surely with God's help through the Bible and through the Holy Spirit and all the resources that we're given, 
we can live for God too in this world. So first of all, Noah was righteous. In verse 9 it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. Both of those words, they're not saying that Noah was sinless. Noah wasn't a super Christian. He wasn't a super a superhuman who was living for the Lord. Noah was a, a follower of God. Well, what, what made him just? What made him, in the, in the sense, perfect? Well, it's that Noah's priorities were set fully on God. Noah was single-minded. He was a man of integrity. He lived his life solely for God. And a life of faithfulness and righteousness followed that. So Noah was single-minded. He wasn't wavering. He, was, he wasn't being tempted, or he was being tempted, but he didn't give in to the temptations of the world. He didn't follow the course that was being set by the world. He submitted himself to God. He was God's committed man. The second one is that Noah walked with God. It's also in verse 9, the last half says, Noah walked with God. You might notice this phrase is the same phrase that's used of Enoch in just the previous chapter. Enoch and Noah, these men both, there's this phrase that he walked with God. Well, what does it mean? Why is it, why, why is it special? For Enoch, it was the idea that his whole life was based on God. To him, knowing God was his life purpose. That's what it means to walk with God. When we base our lives, when we set God as our sole priority in life, it only makes sense that we would walk with him, that we would follow him as we live our lives. In Genesis 7, we're told that Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And so we're given a little bit of a picture of the longevity of Noah's faithfulness to God. I think we can, from, from the passage, we can conclude that Noah was faithful from the beginning of his relationship with God all the way through those 600 years of his life. Noah obeyed. He was dedicated to God. A lot of people think that this project that Noah was, was doing, this, this building of the ark, took anywhere from 50 to 100 years. And Noah was faithful. He finished the project. And that's the third point is that Noah was obedient. In verse 22 it says, Thus did Noah according to all God had commanded him, so did he. God gave Noah a relatively strange command. If you think about it, logically, God gave Noah the command to create a wooden box, a really, really big one, to fit him and a bunch of animals and his family. And this, this boat wasn't going to go anywhere. It wasn't a sailing vessel to get him from point A to point B. He was just going to float in this boat. And God promised that he, would, that he would save him and his family and all of these animals from the judgment that he was bringing on the world through this wooden box. It's a strange command, logically speaking. But Noah didn't argue with God. Noah didn't waver. He didn't question what God was doing. The passage says that he obeyed, and he obeyed fully. And so that's faithfulness over the course of, from the beginning of this command all the way into the, until the end of the building project. Noah was faithful and obedient. And so all of these things, Noah's walking with God, his righteousness, and his obedience, all of these brought Noah to the place where he was faithful. Faithfulness isn't something that we just choose Faithfulness is a result 
of our life being given to God. Noah's faithfulness was a result of his commitment to God, his trust and his obedience to Him. His life of faithfulness was what followed. I think it's really important that we, that we look at, at Noah's mindset as he was going through all of this. Noah could not have stayed faithful simply by making up his mind to do so. This whole project wasn't based on Noah's resilience or his diligence or, or simply his, his making up of his mind, his determination. Noah had to trust in something that was greater than himself, and I think it's obvious what he trusted in or who he trusted in. He trusted in God. Jeremiah 17 Verses 5 through 9 says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. Verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. Verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Noah's reliance could not have been on himself. If you look at the whole situation, Noah was against the world. Noah versus the world. So everything was against him in this world. This long building project, all of this could not have been done. Noah's faithfulness could not have stayed simply by him making up his mind. Rather, he, he stayed with God. He believed God. His strength was God. Noah trusted God with every aspect of his life, and as a result, that life of faithfulness followed. I think it's also important to note that Noah wasn't blind to the world around him. Noah knew what was going on around him. Noah had temptation coming his way, the temptation to quit or the temptation to go and live for himself. Surely in his family, as he was leading his family, they were all experiencing these temptations as well. And Noah had to lead his family. But rather, rather than giving in, rather than simply going along with the flow of the world and, and the way that they were going, Noah chose to go to God. He saw that God was better than sin. He saw that God was right and true and beautiful. And so he walked with God and he was obedient to Him. So where, where does that leave us? This whole story is is set thousands of years ago, but I think there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of parallels. We know today that our human race is sinful. We're in a sinful situation. Greed and lust and, and crime and violence, all of those things are running rampant in our world. People are questioning the institution of marriage. People are con- confused about their gender. Christians live a life of faithfulness and righteousness until it challenges something that they love. Churchgoers on Sundays look great at church, but when they get in the car, they yell at the kids, or, or their week is filled with anger and, and, and secret sins and selfishness. And it's the natural state of humanity. We're not immune to it as Christians. We can give into our flesh just like the rest of the world can only give into their flesh. And so we're in the same position as Noah, and it's a unique position. It's that we see both sides of the equation. We see the wickedness of our world, but we also see the truth of Scripture. The rest of the world can only see the one side, which is why they can't live for Christ. 
book of Romans says that there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. It's speaking about the natural state of humanity. They cannot do right because they only see half the picture. We as Christians, we see both sides, but we still have to choose to do right. If we see, if we see the truth of the gospel and we see our, human, our, our sinful humanity and we choose to go towards our sinful humanity, we're turning our backs on God just like, just like these people did back in Noah's day. And so the, the exhortation is for us to stand firm. Through this passage, we saw the example of Noah and how he was righteous and how he lived a life of faithfulness because his source of strength was God, because he dedicated his life to serving God. And we have to do that too. We have to stand firm like Noah did. But how do we do it? We walk with God. That's, that's what set Noah apart from the rest of the world. He walked with God. What is walking with God? It's intentionally pursuing God, pursuing God's truth. If we make pursuing Him the central theme of of our lives, then we will grow closer to Him. And when this happens, when believers are growing close to to God, when believers are walking with God, it naturally pushes against the the flow and, and the direction of the world. It slows it down. When we communicate the truth of Christ to others, we become a light. I know you know that metaphor that Christ uses in the New Testament about being the lights of the world. We have that opportunity, but it's a choice we have to make every day. Noah didn't just wake up one day and make one singular choice to live for God, to be righteous. It was an active thing that he had to continually be choosing. We have that same choice. We either choose ourselves, we choose our sin, or we choose Christ. By God's grace, we would choose Him. And so, believer, the exhortation is simple. Will you-